I strongly suspect that I'm not the only person in this room who would like to thank the oh-so-ready-for-primetime players for their story of Balaam and the talking ass this morning. This play was written by a Unitarian Universalist, and I like the way that it helps me experience this story because my eyes always sort of glaze over any time I hear someone say, the text for today is Numbers chapter 22, verses 1 through 35. Uh, the book of Numbers, <clears throat> where did it get that name? Um, it actually got that attractive title that always made me want to just delve right into it because it contains a couple of sets of census records somewhere in it, but nearly all of it is the narrative of the Hebrews' supposed migration from Egypt to Palestine, which is hardly a historical fact. There may be some basis of fact in that myth, but it is just a myth. Uh, It happened somewhere probably around 14 or 1500 BCE, at least at, at the, during that time, the, the nation of Israel began to appear in the records of, of other nations, um, and in, uh, of, uh, of Assyria and, uh, and Persia. The um, story's antiquity. It's a long time ago. It's supernatural elements, which, uh, which definitely raised an eyebrow in 2016. And the numerous revisions made later on, we know that the story was revised over and over again through successive generations of scribes, uh, thanks to the modern art and uh, and discipline of textual criticism. Uh, People who look at the whole picture take numbers as a cultural myth with some possible basis, in fact. And those historical facts themselves are unrecoverable at least using the texts and the archaeology that's presently at our disposal. Yet the stories that make up this narrative from the Hebrew Bible do offer lessons for living that can apply in the 21st century. They do apply. You use fourth source specifies Jewish and Christian teachings, which call on us to respond to God's love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. We find that on the back of our order of service every week, along with our other sources, These Jewish and Christian teachings are a subset of Source 3, which is right above it on your order of service, the wisdom from world religions. And we specify the Jewish and Christian subset separately for some reason, and I don't think it's just as a nod to our historical roots. I believe we call out those teachings separately to remind ourselves to beware of resentments against those roots. For many of us, these resentments are grounded in experiences that were highly offensive at the time, including myself. But those times have long since passed, and I'm not in that religion anymore either. A UUA study in 2005 pointed out that we UUs would do well, quote, to make peace with our religious past because denying our own pasts in any sense is an unhealthy thing to do. It's a denial of reality. So we have Source 4 specifically to cover our natural reaction toward against the things that we may have outgrown to remind us not to throw out the baby with the baptismal water, whether we, whether we think that baby is fully human or not. 
And I speak about recovering from our religious pasts, as I've alluded, out of my own experience. I used to be, used to be a recovering Baptist. And I remained a recovering Baptist for a long time. It was about 40 years, in fact, which is an interesting number in view of the Hebrew Bible. But I came in from that theological exile into this room. And I can see today that my Baptist roots have actually prepared me for Unitarian Universalism. And I'm grateful to those roots for how I think and what I am inside today. Some examples. Because I was raised Baptist, I happen to believe in free will and not in predestination. If I had been raised a strict Calvinist, I probably wouldn't get along with you folks real well on that, on that score. Because I was raised Baptist, I cherish the autonomy of the local church and the autonomy of the individual member, the idea that nobody needs a third party to intercede for us with the transcendent. The Baptists call that, what do they call it, priesthood of, belie- of the believer. That's, we have that, we just don't use those words. Because I was raised by a moderate Southern Baptist mother and father pastor, I learned to use reality I learned to use reason. They taught me to use reason as a reality check. And I learned the doctrine of continuing revelation as a Baptist, and that's practically a restatement of our first UU source, direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder. And sure, I still differ with most Baptists on the central issues of theology, but those people made me into the thinking monster that I am. And they unwittingly primed me for Unitarian Universalism. And I've learned to be grateful for those things. We use use are especially fond of celebrating life's questions above the answers. I'd like to invite you then to join me me in conjuring up a few possible meanings, by no means certain meanings, out of one of the spookiest stories in the Hebrew Bible— and to join me in opening ourselves to the possibility of letting go of any unwanted emotional baggage that we might still carry from our religious pasts. Like in another room, I invite you to join me in taking what we need and leaving the rest. One possible meaning from the Balaam story is that the person who sees the truth is not always the smartest or the holiest, or the one with the biggest stick. In the story, it was the donkey, not the great prophet who had the answers. Just because I find myself in a culturally dominant group, whether that's white, male, middle class, educated, adult, culturally dominant group, doesn't mean that I have the answers. A long, I'm a, as a longtime member of a well-known recovery fellowship, I have learned to jump at the opportunity to work through our fellowship's principles with any newcomer. Because every time I do that, I learn some surprising things about myself, and it helps me grow into a more useful and happier person. So I always need to look in the seemingly low places, because that's where the real surprises come from. Another meaning suggested by this story is that being between a rock and a hard place can be a place where quantum change is initiated in our spiritual life. But if my eyes are opened there between the rock and the hard place and I don't add to my spiritual practice, 
then I don't really become a better person at all. I go back to the status quo. In the spring 2015 issue of Religious Humanism, Sarah McLeod lists her reasons for still going to church as a humanist. One of them, she says, is because supportive community is built over time and not just used when in need. Likewise, real sustained growth happens only through discipline. Discipline means continuous repeated action. A third lesson from Balaam's story suggests his it is that, that Balaam's story suggests it involves his unfortunate tendency to act impulsively without considering all the angles. It was unfortunate for his donkey anyway, who was on the business end of the stick. And it was almost supremely unfortunate for Balaam when he ran into the death angel or became aware of her. What I need is restraint of tongue and pen and send in this age. In seeking this kind of restraint, I've been given a checklist of five important questions to ask myself before presuming to correct anyone else. My wife brought this checklist home with her, and I love it. I need to ask myself before I'm ready to teach someone, whether it's with my car horn or with my mouth, I need to ask, is it right? Is it necessary? Is it my business? Was I asked? And can I say what I mean without saying it mean? When I can answer all five of these questions, is it right, necessary, my business, was I asked, and can I say what I mean without saying it mean, when I can answer all those in the affirmative, then I'm allowed to set somebody else straight. Yet another possible point of the Balaam story is that it's never too late to restart my day when I forget those five things and go off. I can restart my day. Back in in research and development, we used to have a joke about new data that was unexpected. One's a trend, two's a principle, and three's a law. You got to do it at least twice, hopefully three times before you start putting stock in the result of that experiment. In the course of my day, three times can be a signal for me to slow down and take stock. When I get notice that I've gotten wound up on the inside, you know that little squirrel that gets on the inside of your chest? You ever feel that? And it's running around on the rib cage in circles and never touching the diaphragm. When I feel that three times before noon, it's time for me to pause and start my day over with a moment of self-awareness and meditation and with a personal amends if I have offended someone. The final suggestion we're going to pull out of the Balaam story is the one we're going to spend the most time on. And it's the one that Nancy referred to as we entered silent meditation. She said, things are not always as they seem. That was probably true in 1400 BCE, and I think it's true today. Things are not always as they seem. We need to keep our eyes open for the unexpected, or we might miss something important. I ran into this principle a few months ago when a classmate told about banging on his door when the doorbell was broken last winter. He had locked himself out, and his roommate was way up on the fourth floor of the apartment, and it was cold. And two officers came up, and my friend, who is black and about 65, thought, oh boy, here we go. 
But these officers were just as friendly as you could possibly imagine. They never once asked him for his ID, and they stayed with him until his roommate heard them and came down and opened the door. And my friend then talked about his anger. Because as he said, if if he had been a 25-year-old black man on that porch, it would have been a whole different story. And I didn't understand. I was casting it into my own perspective and projecting my own white guilt on him. And I asked him, what was the problem? Did you feel guilty about being treated decently by these two cops where a younger black man would not have been? But you know, things were not as they seemed. He said, no, it's not guilt. He says, what it is is, as soon as you start growing a few gray hairs here, they look at you as no longer a threat. You're just something to take care of. Because it'd be a great big public relations fiasco if this poor little old black man froze to death out there on his front porch. And on the way home that night is when I put it together. I realized that just a few nights earlier, I had been stopped for having a taillight out. The officer, against what I know as regulations, let me get out of the car before running his license, my license at night. And then he then he, let me, then he stood there with me, and we had a great conversation for five minutes, and he handed me a warning ticket with, with no penalty. Never once did he consider me a threat. And should I feel guilty about that? Not really. But I should be as angry because of the fact that I was not black or young or olive skinned. He did not apply the same caution with me that he would have used on someone who looked completely different. I should be incensed, not feel guilty, that he categorized me based on my appearance and didn't credit me with the full range of negative human possibilities that he would have credited to someone who looked different. For me, it's not white guilt anymore. It's white indignation. Indignation at the assumption that my appearance means I don't constitute a threat. And for the first time in my life, I now feel qualified to stand with Black Lives Matter as a participant and not just as an ally. We're all invested in this thing. Nobody's equal until everybody's equal. Things are not always as they seem. This principle came out at UU General Assembly last week where one speaker told the story of the myth of unbroken It's a myth of unbroken Unitarian Universalist support for civil rights. And the truth is that we did show up in the 1960s. But when money got tight and activism died down around 1970, the UUA disappeared from the cause for the next 22 years. Yet things are not always as they seem, and they're also not always as we've been taught. Now, for me to point out this historical truth is not to deny the good efforts of a minority of UUs, and it's not to idly lament the collective failures of our past. It is to call on us here and now in this room and in Unitarian Universalism at large to make our future different from our past. The rest of the story starts right now, and the rest of the story is about the need for us to live lives of service so we don't wake up another 40 years from now asking what happened all over again. Also, at the UUGA, Nancy McDonald Ladd from River Road UU reminded us that we need to, as she put it, shout so loudly that Congress will hear us on issues of social justice. 
And I loved that sermon, and I loved Nancy Ladd, McDonald Ladd, but there's one thing here. Shouting loudly isn't going to do the trick. Our effectiveness as an association of congregations is never going to be what it needs to be until we grow in numbers to the point that Congress and the rest of the establishment will have to consider us, Unitarian Universalists, as more than a fringe group of religious liberals. Growing our denomination so that we have political weight or our religion or whatever you want to call it, Growing is never comfortable because that involves bringing in new people and working out new ways of covenanting together. But if we really do want to change this world, then grow we must. And that involves being active witnesses, to borrow another word from those Baptists. We need to be active witnesses for Unitarian Universalism, both in word and deed, with the people we meet in the streets and in the marketplace and at work each week. The Pew Research Foundation reports that the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, N-O-N-E-S, we spelled it right, the nuns, people who report no religious affiliation, the nuns have increased from 7% of Americans in 1990 to 15% in 2007 to 23% in 2014. And that number is nearly 40% for people under 30. Many of the nuns are ripe for Unitarian Universalism. And there are other people sitting in evangelical and even fundamentalist pews this morning listening to their preacher and paranoid to their souls. And I know because I was one of them when I was 17 years old, waiting on the religious police to come tap me on the shoulder and say, you aren't legit. But why? Because they don't believe a word of it. These people, too, are ripe for Unitarian Universalism, and we work beside them every day. And I attend school with some of those evangelical preachers that are in the pulpit, and seminary has convinced many of those preachers of a much more historical Jesus and a much more liberal interpretation of the Bible than they possessed before they started school. And many of those preachers tell me, oh, I so wish that I could preach this stuff on Sunday. And I say, but you can. And they say, no, I couldn't. I'd lose my job. I can't fault them. They've got families to feed. All I can do is be the best example of a Unitarian Universalist I can be to all of these people and remind them that any time they want to come across the street, Our door is open. That's how we grow. Things are not always as they seem. But may we as a people always be the way we seem.